Coming up today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, we get the take on this week at Queen's Park from a man that has a really great seat to observe the goings-on, Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner. The Canadian Institute for Health Information has done a comprehensive look at the impact of COVID and the healthcare crisis on the system and frontline healthcare workers. And the 109th Grey Cup is this weekend in Regina. Bombers and Argos, they'll be battling it out. I'm Shona Thompson filling in on the Bill Kelly Podcast, which starts right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Now, one person who's got a really great seat to observe everything at Queen's Park is the leader of the Green Party of Ontario, Mike Schreiner. He's joining us now. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning, Shannon. I hope everyone's being safe with the winter weather moving in. Absolutely. Well, let's see. Education, health care, uh, protests in support of the Greenbelt and against opening it up for development. Um, oh, new governance powers being bestowed by Premier uh, Ford. Where do you want to begin? That's just this week. Yeah, I tell you what, I've been saying uh, for the last couple of weeks that everywhere you look in Ontario, there seems to be a crisis. Our healthcare system collapsing, uh, volatility in our, and lack of stability in our education system, uh, the green belt being open for development, and an affordable housing crisis that the government really isn't addressing uh, through their housing legislation. Uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, and it feels like, in some cases, the premier is uh, just ignoring it in the case of our healthcare system. And then uh, in the case of what's happening with the green belt, he just seems to be rolling out the red carpet for a handful of land speculators who are going to turn millions into billions. Yeah, uh, as we mentioned yesterday on the show, um, Environmental Defense is holding a weekend that they are calling the Days of Action. And that really harkens back to the Mike Harris days. Oh, absolutely. And I think the only thing that's going to get the Premier to back off on really his destructive plans to pave over the green belt and and to pave over the protections that have been in place, like wetland protections, uh, which protect us from flooding and other extreme weather events, and, and just also just the issues around protecting local democracy and pushing back on bringing in minority rule is going to take people power. And so I've participated in some of the pop-up protests that have been happening uh, over the last couple weeks since the Premier uh, made the announcement late on a Friday afternoon to open the Greenbelt for development and break his promise not to do that. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by the mobilization of people in communities all across the greater Toronto-Hamilton area to push back against this destructive agenda. Well, Mike, is this something that we're going to wind up having to do every six months? Because it was only six months ago that Doug Ford said he was listening to all of us. Uh, we, he would not be opening up the, the green belt. He would not touch the green belt. I heard that like four times in 20 seconds. Um, but, you know, here we are six months later. Yeah, Shona, you know what? I've asked so many questions over the last really four years at Queen's Park around protecting farmland that feeds us, the wetlands that protect us from extreme weather events, or just the green space that so many of us love to, you know, share time with our family in. And over and over again during that time, the premier says, we will never touch the green belt. We will never touch the green belt. Well, he's broken that promise. And he tried to do it before, you know, back in the 2018 election and pushback from the public. He backtracked on it. Again, he introduced legislation in December of 2018 that would have opened the green belt for development. And People power pushed back against it, and the premier pulled back on that. And I think that's what it's going to take again. 
And we know from public opinion surveys, people love the Greenbelt. They recognize that that land is protected for a reason. It's protected because we have to protect the farmland that feeds us and the nature that, you know, protects us from extreme weather events and cleans our drinking water. Well, I mean, one of the things that I'm concerned about, um, because if you don't grow out, then you have to grow up. Um, and and have greater intensification, more high-rises. But one of the things that I know that they've discovered down in Niagara Falls is that with all of the high-rise hotels that they have down there, it's interfering with uh, bird migration and wind patterns in that area. Yeah, and this is, you know, exactly why we have to get past this false choice between tall or sprawl. And one of the things the Ontario Greens have been putting forward is a plan for gentle dis- density, missing middle, and mid-rise housing. Uh, so if you talk to many housing experts, they would say if we could end exclusionary zoning and allow, as of right, uh, duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes, and you know four-story walk-up apartments uh, in residential neighborhoods, if we would pre-zone for uh, mid-rise development along you know major roads and, and transit corridors, and if we could bring in policies like a vacant homes tax or a speculation tax uh, to address the fact that we actually have a lot of uh, ha- homes available to people that are just sitting empty right now, um, that would facilitate, one, increasing supply and increasing supply of more affordable homes where people want to live close to where they work. That would be a much more fiscally responsible and environmentally responsible way of building the homes that we need And ultimately, it would save people money and save municipalities money. Well, one of the other thoughts I had about this, um, because they've been trying to say that, you know, opening up the green belt is really about affordable housing. Um, I don't really see that as being true. And even if it were, you know, it it strikes me as being similar to the trickle down theory of economics, which never actually worked either. Well, exactly. I mean, if you look at most of the homes that are being built um, in the periphery of our urban areas, which is likely what would happen in these areas they want to open a greenbelt development for. Those are million-dollar homes that people simply can't afford. And quite frankly, the cost of commuting, both in terms of fuel costs and just time, um, is unaffordable as well. So many people want an affordable place to live close to where they work. And we can do that through gentle density, missing middle, mid-rise, uh, housing, so we don't have to choose between tall and sprawl. And not only would that reduce people's commute time and help them save money that way, it would also help municipalities save money, which is ultimately going to save uh, people money through their property taxes, because the cost of servicing sprawl is far more expensive than the cost of servicing homes within existing urban boundaries. And just common sense tells you that. I mean, the hydro lines, sewer lines, water lines, roads that you have to build uh, to service sprawl is just so expensive. And we simply can't afford to do that when we're facing a housing affordability crisis. Well, Mike, you know, when you're talking about uh, roads to service the sprawl, you know, this is all just justification for the 413. Well, exactly. I mean, it goes hand in hand um, that so much of this is being driven by a handful of speculators who have purchased land along the proposed 413 route and in parts of the greenbelt adjacent to existing urban boundaries who are saying, hey, let's let's build here. 
um, because they can turn millions into billions. You know, it's it's interesting. Eight of the 15 parcels of land that are proposed to being open for development in the Greenbelt have been purchased uh, since Doug Ford uh, was elected to office. And you know what? Why would somebody purchase that land uh, and pay the price they paid for it if they didn't think there was a good chance of it being developed? So, you know, there's there's a lot of things that just stink about what's happening. And, and the bottom line is, is we, the people of Ontario, we're, we're going to pay the price for this uh, in, you know, higher costs for commuting, higher property taxes to service the sprawl, and quite fl- frankly, the risks associated with extreme weather events. You know, in 1954, when Hurricane Hazel hit Ontario and tragically 81 people died, thousands of people lost their homes, you know, millions of dollars of damage, the province said never again. And so that's why we brought in environmental protections like conservation authorities. And the fact that Doug Ford is taking a wrecking ball to it at a time when we know these kinds of extreme weather events are going to increase due to the climate crisis that we're facing is just so reckless and irresponsible. Mike, we're going to have to leave it there, but I wanted to thank you for your time. Yeah, hey, anytime. Happy to be on. Uh, Mike Schreiner is the leader of the Ontario Green Party. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's no secret that the last few years have been among the most challenging on the healthcare sector. A new analysis of the last few years is out from the Canadian Institute for Health Information, and it shows the impacts on supply, distribution, and migration of healthcare workforce. Here to discuss it further is Kate Parson, who is the program lead with the Health Workforce Information, a part of the Canadian Institute for Health Information. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Kate. Great to be here, Shana. Uh, this report takes a look at all of the frontline healthcare workers, doesn't it? Uh, yes, specifically physicians and nurses. And we know in the last few years, it's been incredibly difficult for frontline healthcare workers, but your report really sheds a light on, on just how difficult it's been. Yes, we were looking at the supply and distribution, as you mentioned, over the course of 2021, and we've been able to see some trends, specifically in movement of nurses as well as physicians. Uh, notably, in Ontario, we are able to quantify that there are some fewer nurses working in some settings, specifically long-term care and in the community. But at the same time, we have seen an increase in other settings like uh, agency nursing and self-employment for nurses. So it's really a shift away from some of those frontline jobs. So all of these people are still working in clinical settings, but yes, there has been a bit of a shift. And as you mentioned, it has been extremely challenging. This report also features some Statistics Canada data that looks at the overtime work by healthcare workers in the last year. I'm glad. You, we, I'm sorry. I'm glad you brought that up because that is one of the areas that I wanted to focus on. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've seen the highest amount of overtime work by healthcare workers in a decade, um, and one in five healthcare workers, all healthcare workers, logged overtime last year. And, you know, we've had the stories over and over in the news in the last, what, 24 months or so about the shortages of nurses and how many hospitals have uh, triple-digit deficits in terms of, uh, of their nurse staffing. So, yes, that's something we're paying close attention to as well. And from our standpoint, we think that data is foundational to be able to make those decisions and plan appropriately for healthcare staff. And you said you also took a look at, uh, at the situation with physicians. Yes, so we looked at the rate of new physicians, so coming into the supply, and our analysis did find that the rate of growth for primary care, so family doctors, 
did slow over the last year to around 1%. So there is still a small amount of growth, but not a great uh, notable amount. Well, I, I know areas like uh, Hamilton, Niagara, I'm assuming it's uh, also true in London. Um, there's a shortage of family medicine physicians. Yes, so we, we are uh, closely monitoring that. We, we do sort of monitor the trends over time, and they are there is a small amount of growth, but yes, we are aware of those stories as well. Yeah. Uh, the family medicine services, the actual delivery of care, also declined, not, not only in, uh, in the number of, of physicians that are coming out into family medicine. Yeah, so not surprisingly, we did, we know a lot of people, a lot of services stopped last year, so we did see a decrease in the number of services provided last year, likely as a result of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, also, because of that, physician pay declined. Yeah, so that's the payments overall that's sort of reimbursed for billing. It's not their pay overall. That's not what this looks at. But yes, we did see a drop in the payments provided to physicians. Were there particular areas or or did you not uh, distill that down further? So we we did get into that. It was across the board, I'll say, though. But uh, notably in primary health care specifically, there was a, a drop as well as across the system in terms of physicians overall. The report does get into some detail on the pandemic exposing some pressures that have really been building in the healthcare system for some time. Yes, yeah, so there, there, some of these things are longstanding, but we've been able to quantify them for the last year in terms of, yes, workforce, uh, as well as like service provided. And, and when there's this deficit that's been over a decade, and you hit a crisis like we did with COVID, that just, you know, the dominoes start falling. So, yes. So, obviously, this the past three years has been challenging for governments, healthcare providers, everyone across the board. And it has put additional strain on our healthcare system, um, which is why we need to be able to plan appropriately for the future, which is where our data, we hope, comes in to help. What are you hoping to do with this report and, and how do you hope it'll be utilized? We hope this report will help inform sort of the decision makers, governments at various levels to be able to plan appropriately for the future and make uh, sort of evidence-based decisions to ensure that Canadians, the workforce are able to uh, all be brought together and considered. Now, this report came out just yesterday. What kind of feedback has there been so far? So we've, uh, we've obviously been sharing it, um, sort of highlighting some of the information, and we know that uh, governments, hospitals, people are paying attention, and we hope that it'll be able to inform their choices going forward. Have uh, any of the organizations for healthcare professionals, um, did they participate in this report? Have they given you any feedback? So the data itself is provided by a number uh, from a number of sources, including some of the uh, colleges, et cetera, so they are aware of this. Yeah. And do you want to hear from average people about this report? Do you want some feedback from the general public? We're always open to hearing from everyone. We obviously put this information out there to to make an impact. So we are certainly open to it. And how can people access this report? Sure. So it's available on our website. If you go to kaihai.ca, it's one of the featured reports. There is many different sort of analysis that people can walk through. What are some of the analysis that are available? Sure. So all the data provided to you is available on our website. There's a lot of graphs. So you're as well as some uh, sort of anecdotes from people out in the system, like doctors, physicians, nurses, um, in terms of what they hope to come from this. And and what are some of those anecdotes? Uh, basically, in the sense that 
uh, people are living the data in the sense that they do, people are tired. We know we're hearing from nurses that are working overtime um, and the impact that that's having on them. So we, those are all featured. I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to ask you this question. But, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and ask it. When you read over and you saw some of the results that were coming in, what was your reaction? So obviously it's this, uh, the, the facts around the overtime from the Statistics Canada Labor Force Survey um, sort of quantified it in a lot of what we've been hearing. But it's good to be able to uh, get those numbers, put them out there so it's able to uh, hopefully drive some change. And it's really important that we quantify all of this, particularly if we're hoping to uh, utilize that in terms of our government um, uh, doing more and and targeting uh, where the spending is going to go to the best possible area. Yes, we yes, we uh, at Kaihai, we're all about the data and we're hoping that uh, we're able to provide some information to make evidence based decisions by those government decision makers of all levels. Kate, I wanted to thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sean. It was great to be here. Uh, just once again, before we go, can you remind people where they can get some more information and they can read this sure. report? All this information is online on our website at kaihai.ca. It's one of our featured reports on the main page. Kay Parson is the program lead with Health Workforce Information. Uh, the Canadian Institute for Health Information is the organization that compiled this information. And what they've done is they have quantified uh, what has been going on. You've probably heard different anecdotal portions of the story over the last couple of years. But now there's some hard data that uh, governments hopefully will use in order to uh, better target some of the spending that'll be coming in. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The 109th Grey Cup game is this Sunday. Argos versus the Blue Bombers in Regina. To break down for us, we are calling on Josh Smith, who's a reporter with Three Down Nation. Hey, Josh, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm okay, but you know what? For Cat fans, this is a tough matchup. This might be, if you would have taken the playoffs as a whole and said, what is the matchup East-West that Ticat fans least want to see? I think 90 to 95% would have said the bitter rival Argos versus the team that beat them in the last two Grey Cups, the Blue Bombers. Like, I can't think ratings for this game are going to be all that great in Hamilton because I think Ticat <laughs> fans would rather watch just about anything else than one of these two teams hoist the cup. <laughs> absolutely. Although there are some pretty good stories going on here. Oh, absolutely. You have... Well, Zach Caleros play with the with the injury that he suffered in the West Final. You have a plethora of former Ticat players playing in this game. So there could be some Ticat fans interested in Brandon Banks finally getting his elusive Grey Cup. You have Jagarit Davis making his sixth consecutive appearance in six seasons in the Grey Cup Finals, which is an insane thing to think. And then, of course, it's just it's the matchup of the two teams that won their divisions this year. So there's, there's a whole host of things that you can kind of sink your teeth into, Ticat fan or not. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned Zach Caleros. Uh, what's the latest word? Well, the Bombers said yesterday after uh, their media availability that he will play on Sunday, but he was seen last night at the CFL Player Awards accepting his second consecutive Most Outstanding Player Award with a noticeable limp. So, I mean, he hasn't practiced at all this week. They have their final real practice today in Regina. 
practice tends to tell the truth. And I know that they're saying he's going to play and chances are he is going to play because he's, he's that type of guy, unless he can't go, he's going to go, but it could severely limit them. And that could give the Argos that little bit of an extra edge they need to actually win this game. Yeah. So break down how you see this game playing out. Well, there's two ways this can go. And the Argos typically in these spots get the breaks. They get the, you know, the legendary Argo bounce, something goes their way, but Toronto's going to have to run the football. They're going to have to protect the football on offense and on defense. They're going to have to stop what is a dynamic passing attack from the bombers. They have the league's top receiver in Dalton Schoen, who was also last night named the league's top rookie. They have the most outstanding player in Zach Caleros. And if he is 90% of what he can be, he's the most dangerous weapon on that team. And then Winnipeg has a stout defense, guys like Willie Jefferson, Jackson Jeffcoat, Adam Big Hill, and a number of excellent players in the secondary. It's going to be an interesting matchup, but it all comes down to the intangibles. It's if if one team gets a, a fumble going their way or gets a couple of interceptions, it turns the tide in this game. And it's it's the Argos in the Grey Cup. They haven't lost in this game, in this spot, in their last six attempts to win the championship. So it, it, I think on paper you think Winnipeg's going to run away with it. But when it actually hits the field, I think it's going to be much closer than people expect. Uh, do we have a, a weather forecast for Regina for Sunday yet? As far as I know, it's, it's, it's going to be typically late November cold, but I don't think there's going to be any snow or anything. like. It's not going to be like what, what we saw in Buffalo with nine feet of snow <laughs> or whatever they're getting down there and they had to move the Bills game. But no, I just think it's going to be, I, th- I think the weather's going to be not as bad as it was when the breakup was last there, which was 2013. There w- It was minus 20 weather all week. And then the day of the game, I think it got up to like minus five, which is, I, I, I don't, those are too cold weather for me to sit outside and watch a game in. But this one, it looks like it's going to be about the same somewhere in the, in the low minus single digits, but I don't think it's going to have much of an effect on the game. Well, you know, the two things that Canadians really love to gripe about, one would be the weather and the other is CFL officiating. Somebody always has a criticism. Of course. And I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I, to be honest with you, that's kind of all across all sports. All, all sports will have the, the refs that people harp on. The, they're, they're, I think it's Ron Foxcroft who's going to call this game. The guys that, that call the games on Great Cup Sunday are, are the gr- highest graded referees in the league each year. So it's, it's a well-deserved. There's going to be calls that go the way that you don't want and calls that go the way you do want. And that, that's just the nature of football. They, they, not, just like the players make mistakes, refs can make mistakes too. But I, I wouldn't expect that to have any sort of impact on the outcome either. Josh, is it fair to ask you for a prediction? It's absolutely fair, and I will give you one. Okay. And most people listening are probably not going to like this, but I think the Argos are going to win this game 27-21. I kind of thought you were leaning that way. <laughs> yeah, I just, with, they've played Winnipeg. They haven't played Winnipeg in a Grey Cup, I think, since sometime in the 1950s, but they've never lost to Winnipeg in a Grey Cup. Like I said earlier, they've won their last six trips to the Grey Cup. There's just something about, you got Andrew Harris, the Argos running back, going up against his old team, and the Argos just in this in this spot, if, if you're a Ticat fan listening to this, you know your your existence is pain. You're always going to deal with heartbreak. That's the sort of the nature of being a Ticats fan in the last 25 years. What would be more heartbreaking than the Argos in their first shot against the team that you couldn't beat twice, knocking them off? It just feels like kind of a, uh, a terrible storybook ending. I mean, a storybook ending for the Argos, but if you're a Ticat fan, it's one of those ones where you get to the end, you're like, the bad guy wins? Yeah. This is terrible. Yeah. I, I, you're I just you're think, not making this any easier on Ticat fans. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. I, I feel bad. But yeah. it, it, the last time I saw the Argos in a great cup, they were playing a juggernaut from Calgary. And I just had a gut feeling that the Argos would pull it off. And they did. It's the same thing here. At some point, Winnipeg's luck is going to go the other way. 
And I just happen to think for for everyone listening to this, that's Ticap fan. Unfortunately, it's going to yeah. be this Sunday, and the Argos are going to emerge victorious we, we, and Grey Cup champions once again. Yeah, we got to go. There's no overtime here. Josh Smith <laughs> is a reporter for Three Down Nation. Thanks for your time. Thanks as always for having me on. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.